I'm Sonia Morton Firth and you're tuned in to the Sonia Morton Firth Show. Today my guest is Dr. Rob Kelly. Rob stabbed his wife three times, has attempted suicide several times and eventually he found himself homeless on the streets of Manchester with nothing. Now described as the Gordon Ramsay of the addiction world, Rob helps thousands recover from alcoholism. Watch this interview as we talk about what makes an alcoholic, how to spot the signs and rewire your brain to a full recovery. Dr. Rob, thank you so much for being a guest on my show. I'm truly honoured. And you're all the way in... San Antonio, Texas, guys, originally from Manchester in the United Kingdom, went down to Oxford to get educated, lived in London, just around the corner from Sonia, and then moved to uh, uh, San Antonio, Dallas first and then San Antonio. But it's great to be here, Sonia. Thank you for asking me on the show. It's lovely to have you. Um, and life in life in uh, San Antonio, Texas, presumably, well, it's a lot warmer than here in London. Uh, but Rob, look, you've had an absolutely extraordinary background. I think that's that's the best way to describe it. And I'd really like to get into that. Um, and I think a really good place to start is um, you entitled your book, Daddy, Daddy, Please Stop Drinking. And I'd love us to start from there and where that title came from. Well, I've been writing my book for about two years. Uh, I want to put this straight. My wife's been writing my book. Uh, I give her bits and pieces of my life because most of it was in the subconscious brain that doesn't come to fruition until I really started getting well. <clears throat> so I wrote it and about uh, two years ago, as a matter of fact, my youngest daughter after 20 years of something, I don't know, got in touch with me for the first time and she messaged me on Facebook and we went over there and we met her and then we met my grandbaby, three months old, four months old grandbaby for the first time ever. And then we talked about the books and writing this book, you're gonna be in it, blah, 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 I'm gonna to dedicate to you. And I think it was Charlotte, my daughter, who says, why don't you call it Daddy, Daddy, Please Stop Drinking? Because uh, we got like 10 titles at the time for it. So <clears throat> the reason why that's prevalent is uh, they, the authorities, which you can get into later, took my children off me. And that eldest was three at the time, Charlotte was three. And as she was walking down the path with mommy, the police and child services, she said three things to me. She said, Daddy, Daddy, please don't go. Because they were taking them off me. And then she says, Daddy, Daddy, please get better. And as she got to the gate and opened the gate with mommy, she turned around one more time over her shoulder and she said, Daddy, Daddy, please stop drinking. And I couldn't do it, Sonia. It was heart-wrenching. And even today, when I share that story, after all this time, I tear up and I have to take two minutes a way to think about the damage that I did, but more of the, obviously the, the re, reuniting of, of, of uh, parent and, and uh, children, which is kind of what we specialize in today. You know, I specialize in alcohol, drug and other stuff as well, depression and bipolar, but we mainly survive for one reason. We have a passion for this deal in the MS staff and we specialize in getting families back together again after alcohol and drugs. So we want to see the wife come back. We want to see the kids come back, you know, stuff like that, which just warms my heart, really does. So where do, I mean, look, you obviously, and, and those three sentences that your daughter said to you, that those aren't sentences that just come out of the blue. 
what where do, oh. where do those sentences come from and, and and if it is too painful to talk about it just let, let me know that no i mean every time i speak about it it's good you know i, I got married and uh I, I i didn't know i had a drink problem though i was drinking every day probably when you year say after i got married every day i mean you know <laughs> probably the majority of england drink every day to to some yes. extent um, people are in lockdown now probably having even more to drink um, that's true we are well, a sort of a drinking nation but but there's drinking and there is drinking yeah and don't remember back in the 80s um uh, people, I mean, people went to for, for a pint after work or whatever. I'm talking about bottles of vodka uh, during the day, starting at six in the morning, as soon as I got up. And uh, so my wife left. And in actual fact, what happened is, and I hope it's not too strong for your audience here, but I apologize if it is, guys, but you need to know this and about alcoholism. I was so much in my, my disease. Uh, I, can't, I woke up one morning about three o'clock. And I was dying to drink alcohol. I was shaking. So I come downstairs hoping there's some vodka in, in the uh, in the kitchen somewhere. And lo and behold, I found half a bottle of vodka, you know, the tall bottles. And I grabbed it off the side. <clears throat> and the funny thing is I put it back on, the, back on the side and I turned around to get a crystal glass because, hey, I'm not an alcoholic. I'm not drinking from the bottle. So this is my justification. So I turned around to get this beautiful crystal glass. And what happened is my wife came behind me that I didn't see. She'd followed me downstairs and when I turned around, she snatched the bottle up the side and she said, Rob, I think you've had enough. Now, let's think about that for a second. It was probably my third bottle within 24 hours. I was due to drive to work in four hours. I was due to have a board meeting in seven hours. She was probably right. Probably right. I so, you, so you were a successful guy. This, I mean, if you yes. were a board meeting, yeah. going to work. So you were a functioning. Very high yeah. functioning. So what I should have said to her, was Mrs. Kelly, you are right, go back to bed, sleep some more. Uh, unfortunately, uh, what this alcoholic did was took a kitchen knife out and stabbed her three times. Uh, don't remember doing this because I was in a blackout, remember? So she was bleeding on the floor. I called the ambulance. And then when I heard the ambulance in the background, I jumped into a taxi and went to Spain for three months. And I would only come back if, uh, if she promised in writing with my attorney not to press charges. And, how, and, and that's what happened. Do you remember when you were awake how you felt? I mean, so you don't remember stabbing your wife, presumably she'd had that conversation with you saying, um, Rob, oh. stabbed me and I don't want you to come back. Yeah, it, it, I mean, I was drunk most of the time. In fact, no, I was drunk all of the time in Spain, trying to hide that uh, person I'd become. You know, I couldn't face myself in the mirror. I couldn't think about myself. So I was drowning with alcohol all of the time. So I'd heard through attorneys and, and my dad that this has happened. And my attorney said, stay away for a bit, you know, let's see what we can do. So when he called me and said, we have affidavits of, of Margaret saying you can come back home. I came back home and I came back to the house and I opened the door of the house and there was four suitcases there. And she was actually stood at the door and said, we're leaving you. And she took my kids off me and she left. Now my first thought pattern, Sonia was not, what a crap dad or husband have been. My first thought was, how dare you? You have no idea who I am. Because I used to run with the gangs back in my teens. Some of the bad gangs, uh, quality street guys. Some people recognize them. I was part of that deal. And uh, I got my attorney on the phone. And sure enough, I give him a check for like, I don't know how, 25,000 pounds. Back in the day was a lot of money. Mm. And he brought my two kids back the next day through court. He went to court. 
And uh, I took them into the into the uh, living room, and I put the TV on for them, and I sat them down. And the, oh, Sonia, the the warmth I felt inside, the pride that I've had these children about. It's like you can't take my kids off me. It was amazing, and I remember as if it was yesterday walking into the kitchen, and the thought hit my mind of wouldn't it be great if I just had one beer to celebrate? This was ten in the morning, so I remember opening the fridge and. Tush, opening the can. Three days later, when the police kicked the door down, because I'd been in blackout for three days, no nappies, no food for the children for almost three days, so they could have died. Uh, the authorities or the police kicked me until I woke up, and that's when they took my children off me. So that, that's how that led into three things. Daddy, don't go, because they were taking him away. Mm. Daddy, get better. They knew, must have knew I was sick. And Daddy, Daddy, please stop drinking. God bless him was uh, the last thing she said. I want to, uh, when did the drinking start? Was there a point, because uh, at this stage, the stage that you said you stabbed your wife, you were already drinking three bottles in 24 hours. Was there something that triggered the, the drinking in the first place? The first time I took a drink, it was in Liverpool Irish Centre, in Liverpool. I was a musician, thrown on stage with a, with a musical family and, uh, was I don't know what I was expecting. We'd come from playing pubs, but um, we'd just come out and, you know, these guys were there and it was 500 people. And I just absolutely freaked out, absolutely freaked out. And uh, I couldn't go on the second stage, you know? I just couldn't go on. So my uncle said to me, here's a beer. I didn't know what a beer was. I mean, I kind of must have known, but he said, here's a beer, uh, drink this. And I drank it. And my whole world just lit up after that few mouthfuls. So I knew I'd find something that would change the rest of my life. And that's where it started. And that you know, was, a, it was progressive. I, I remember as, as a little child, I remember, not, not, not too little, but I remember my, it was my dad. I remember my dad giving me my first sip of wine and, and me feeling more big. But I don't really remember. Well, I mean, I was from Newcastle, so let's face it, we all drank a bit when we shouldn't have done that. Um, but not to the extent, I don't think I loved it at first. I think it took me a while to try and force myself to like it. Of course, we're talking about the alcoholic brain. I've often, I've, I've done some research on the normal brain, such as yours, and people go, oh no, I took my first drink, it was horrible. I spat it out. I swore I'd never drink. It was something like Baby Sham or something. Remember Baby Sham back in the day? Oh, yes, or or Perno yes, and Black. Oh, yes. Yes. Snowball. 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 Oh, my God. Perno. Oh, God. Well, we're showing our age now. <laughs> right. <laughs> this was only 20 years ago, guys. And uh, so, yeah, it's. Uh, I asked them, you know, how do you feel you took your first drink? And they say it was horrible. When I took my first drink, I knew I'd found something that was going to serve me well for the future. And that's what happened. And, and don't, I mean, you must remember that when, when I got my job at Abbey Road, it was like I was a 15-year-old kid, unheard of, uh, challenging these guys. But I remember, I remember standing outside Abbey Road, which is a huge, huge uh, studio as mo most people know where the Beatles I mean, recorded. Abbey, Abbey Road is, is famous for the Beatles. I mean, it's the, yes, the exactly. It's the place. The place, <clears throat> right? And St. John's yeah. Wood, yeah. Exactly. I mean, I played with Elton John, David Bowie, Queen, all, all the guys you I was playing with. So. You played with them? Wow. Yes. I, I was their session bass player when their bass player couldn't make it. 
uh, I would step in with all them guys. So it was a prestigious job, paying a fortune per hour. In fact, Freddie would sometimes request me to go down two o'clock in the morning and I'd wake me up and I'd go down and, you know, do this work with him. So, uh, I mean, to, to even apply for that job at my age was ridiculous. But what happened, Sonia, is a member stood outside and, and about, I don't know how far the road, there used to be a little off license there or, or news agent something. And I bought one beer because this is my first interview. And I drank the one beer outside and went in. And I come out and I felt pretty good about it. And I got on the train back home, no phones, cell phones then. And they sent me a letter a couple of days later saying, you've got the first edition, can you come to two? I went down to my second audition and my alcoholic mind was like, well, if this is my second, I should have two beers. So I had two beers to win in. I had seven auditions for that job, Sonia. Oh my God. And I drank seven beers before I went in. I don't remember going in. I don't remember doing the session. I remember getting home with a headache. And about four or five days later, they, they lettered me and said, I got the job. So what does that tell me about alcohol? It tells me this is my friend. Yeah. Every time I drink this, right. good things happened. And, and that, that was the thing, it was crazy. And so how come you did, because you obviously didn't career, um, go down the career route of being in um, what, what happened after that? Well, I've done studio work and, and for jingles and TV, Piccadilly and radio. I used to do all their jingles, uh, you know, playing back in the day. Um, and when I got the Abbey Road job, uh, I, I was heavy into college by then. But when I come out, I've played in various bands and I've done, I used to knock around with Liam and uh, Noel uh, and we kind of wrote some songs together in, in his bedroom. I've hung around with all the, you know, uh, all the bands in Manchester, uh, Happy Mondays and all that. So I've done bits and bobs, but never. In fact, here's a story for you. So we had this drum, this just sparked off now. This is funny. I had this drummer called Tony. He used to play with us in the afternoon in this little Irish band that we played in Manchester. And we used to have this gig where you could, uh, you could play the afternoon and you could play the nighttime as well. So there's no taking gear down. So you can have a few drinks and sleep on the side until the pub opened back at seven o'clock. And uh, we did that. And then about six o'clock when we all got up, Tony started packing his drums up. And I said, what are you doing, Tony? We have a gig. Oh, I can't make it tonight, Rob. So why? That band I invited you to join, remember that? I said, oh, remember them guys? Yeah, yeah. Well, we're going down to, uh, we're going up to Newcastle, uh, sorry, uh, Glasgow, and we're going to do a, an audition. We're going to play in this audition thing. And my words to him were, if you leave me without a drummer tonight, you will never play in this town again. And Tony said, well, I've got to go, Rob. And as he's packing up and he's walking towards the door, I said, what, what are you going to call yourself this band? And he said, we're thinking of calling ourselves Oasis. And I said, what, a, a puddle in the middle of a desert? You'll never make it. Of course, months later, when I'm watching Top of the Pops, the rest is history. Yeah. Wow. Crazy. So, so I'd never actually made it, but I was doing stuff in the background. Very, very close. There was something else <coughs> I wanted to pick up earlier, and, and obviously I want to come back to your journey. You mentioned um, the alcoholic brain. Mm. What, what is the alcoholic brain? I, I presume we're talking about something that, and again, I guess the conversation here would then go, oh, are you born an alcoholic, I guess? Yes, you are. I mean, you can't drink yourself into becoming an alcoholic. I'm going to say that again because it freaks people out. You can't drink yourself into becoming an alcoholic. Now, drugs are different. Alcohol reacts differently on the brain. So we have a predisposition there, and you can trace alcoholism back through your family. So you are born like this. 
it may skip a generation, but we're born like this. And what happens when we, what happens with the alcoholic brain is it's remapped from birth up until about eight or nine years old. So it's called trauma. And many people think, I've not got trauma. I've never been in a car accident. No one's died. Trauma to the alcoholic brain is something like this. Rob, get down off that chair, you stupid idiot, which I was called. Rob, how can you go to college? No one in our family's ever gone to college. You're not that clever. That was trauma for me, and that was child abuse. I mean, I'm going to say something now that's going to shock your listeners. If you have the alcoholic brain, anything less than nurturing as a child is child abuse. End of story. So our brain are remapped through this trauma because we take things very personally. And what happens is um, we self-sabotage from an early age because, you know, we just don't like living like this. We've tasted alcohol for the first time, you know, and we have to change them neural pathways in the head. Because what happens is the neurons stop firing and the central nervous system gets closed down and uh, we can't function in the end. And we have to drink alcohol to escape our life because we hate ourselves so badly. And, and that's the deal. And there's so many questions about, I'm finding this, this fascinating. Mm. First of all, I think, how do you know if you're an alcoholic or have an alcoholic brain? I mean, some of the things that you just mentioned, um, you know, I, I would say I had a sort of a similar childhood, love my mum and dad, no no disrespect to my mum and dad, but you know, I was brought up in the seventies and, and yeah. it was strict and it was, you know, wallop, yeah. uh, not as good as your brother. And, and that's how I perceived life, I guess. And yes. Mum and dad divorced, blah, blah, blah. And probably a lot of people may um, may have had that sort of background as well. Some, some, some do, some don't. And, and as you say, a lot, a lot of people do drink alcohol. Mm. There's a way to tell, there's a couple of ways to tell. First of all, when you have started drinking, can you stop? When you take the first drink, can you stop? That's the first giveaway, because we never stop. The compulsive brain. Then there are people who never touch alcohol, who have the alcoholic tendencies. They are the guys running Amazon. They are the guys running Google. I don't mean them guys in particular, but the guys that are running multi-million dollar companies because they have that focus thing that nobody else has. It's called the addicted brain. They get an idea in their head and they will not stop until they actually see it in front of them. Like we start drinking and we drink to oblivion. Like me and you went out tomorrow, Sonia, in a bar. We both had a couple of drinks. Well, we given, said goodnight. Given, so we... given that I haven't been out to a bar in a long time because of true. That's I might true. go, I might just say <laughs> <Crazy. yes>, you. <laughs> but even after the few, you would go home, go to bed and get up for work. I would find alcohol until about three in the morning. And then I'd go and try to sleep. Then I'd wake up craving alcohol and wouldn't be able to stop. And that's the difference. And, and that is not something that just more and more alcohol causes. No. Like, you know, when you no. on a on a chocolate bin, we've all had, let's say, food, food similar well, it's not a similar sort of thing. Um, some people can't stop eating food. Is it that sort of... Same thing. It actually is the same thing. Well, alcohol is the symptom. So people say, what does that mean? They go, well, let's say I had chicken pots, for instance, and you saw the spots on me. And you go, hey, Rob, I can see you've got chicken pots. I can see the spots. Well, actually, that's the symptom, one of the symptoms from chicken pots. I actually have a viral infection. And as an adult, chicken pots can kill me. But you only see the spots. It's the same with alcohol, Sonia. People see the alcohol, they don't see the disease. I have a brain disease, a mental illness, or as we like to say, a mental injury, 
because you can get over it, uh, that people don't see. So it's one of the most misunderstood diseases in the world. But people don't, and we're just trying to find out. And I'm kind of, I've done a, my own research over the last 20 something years and uh, all evidence-based. And we're just getting in now to exactly what alcoholism is because it affects us in so many ways. You put the drink down, you're still left with my alcoholic mind that has been remapped by birth for self-sabotage. So most of my decisions are self-sabotage. If I do, I, I drink and mess it up. I'm going to tell a girlfriend or wife I never drink anymore. I don't for a week and I mess it up. All these things that are self-sabotaging, you don't have them. I do. And that's the difference. And you say it usually correlates to a parent or a, or a or grandparent or somebody <clears throat> in the line of the family having it. Somebody always has the disease passing down. Now, the problem is, is, is uh, being brought up in, in the 70s and 80s is that grandfather liked to drink, liked a drink. That's what he used to say about my granddad. My granddad was a full-blown alcoholic, but nobody said that in those days. They say, oh, he liked to drink. Yeah, so that's kind that. of a giveaway, yeah. right? You've heard, yeah, so how can you track back? We like I know. <laughs> we like there you go. Yeah, exactly. He likes a tipple of whiskey every night. Oh, really? Well, we have to look into that. So it's, But it's really hard to trace back further than there because nobody was called an alcoholic back then. It was just, you know, oh, Jimmy, he likes a drink every night. So what I, I mean... I've, I've, um, I've interviewed a, a, some, a lot of guests that have either been on drugs or alcohol um, and the word addict, which I don't particularly like the word addict. Mm. I don't know why, I just think it's got very ne negative connotations. Um, but the two are always lumped together, you know, mm. alcohol and drugs. Mm. But you're basically saying <coughs> drugs, as in classic no. drugs or cigarettes or any sort of drug that way is different to actually being an alcoholic. It is, and, and this is research over years and years. People find it shocking. Well, it's all the same alcohol as a drug. No, alcohol reacts on the brain. There's a chemical in alcohol that reacts to the alcoholic brain or the addictive brain that is different, completely different to any drug. You see, I can go and take morphine shot now for pain. They can give me some of the strongest painkillers which I've had for pain. I take them accordingly. You know, now, you, so I said before, you can't drink yourself to become an alcoholic, which is true, but you can become dependent upon drugs that make you an addict or addicted to drugs. Yes. That's, that's a slow progression. You're not hooked from day one. With alcohol, you are. You're hooked from day one. You see the pain pills over here in America, they get them from the doctors. And then after a certain time, the doctor cuts them off. So you have to go to the streets. And what happens is you go from codeine you know, or they go from... Uh, I can't remember any, anything else, some really hard uh, drugs over here, they go from that to heroin. And they go to sniffing or taking heroin to injecting heroin. And by the time you're at that stage, you're in a really sad, horrible, risky uh, place in life. And then they put you on the replacement for heroin, which they then become addicted to as well. It's just a horrible, slippery slope. Um, Methadone is, is the worst drug in the world. Suboxone is another one they use. And uh, I know from my patients, it's harder to come off Suboxone than it is off heroin. That's all I'm going to say about that. It's sick. The pharmaceutical companies run America. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons why not a lot of people are getting well is there's no money in people getting well when they have alcoholism or, or addiction of any kind. 
And that's why they can't give you a pill. So they're not interested in us. One of my main, I've worked with some of the, uh, literally household names of film, music, um, uh, sports, some of the biggest names. If you were to, if I was to ask you the top two names in the movie industry over the last 10 years, he would be in the list. That's how big he was. You know, you couldn't, all of my guys, we had to fly in secretly to the ranch. I mean, you know, that's, that's the kind of guys we work with. Um, you know, if, if I was a strong iron man, I could probably go there and mention some, but I'm not that strong. Well, so that's a bit eventual, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Yes, that, exactly. Yes. That's what I'm saying. It is very, very. And uh, what I do like, though, is I like I like some of the white rap stars of, of the day. You know, they were awesome as well. I used to love listening to those. Great guy. Absolutely great guy. Wow. <clears throat> and OK, so you mentioned it. Well, you said it's a gene. It's something you're born with. And you talked about neuropathways. How do you rewire the brain then? This is awesome. So I'm going to do something visually. I hope everyone can see me because I do have a green screen here. I apologize for that. So this, this is my central neural pathway in my brain. And that is uh, self-sabotage. That is destroying everything in my life until I've got nothing and I'm homeless. That is the M6 out of London. Okay. The main freeway. I'm going to take it every single time. So we start to build new neural pathways off that self-care. You are good enough. You can achieve this little miracles every day that we start to build. And what happens over a period of time is this happens where the good neural pathways take off that I am good enough, that I can do this, that I am lovable. I accept today that I'll never be blonde enough, tall enough, thin enough, or rich enough. I accept that today. And then we, we, we find them places to go jobs and they get encouraged about life and excited and sooner or later the self-sabotaging neural pathways become almost non-existent. So the good choices and good life every day now we have, once you've recovered from the illness, is a knee-jerk reaction. So my, my knee-jerk reaction today about anything going wrong is to sit down with my wife and discuss it. My knee-jerk reaction many years ago was to drink alcohol. So that's how it's changed. There is permanent recovery available for those people that want it. So we can never drink alcohol again. That's but, what I'm about to you ask. Know, can you ever? Yeah, no, <laughs> never. Never take any alcohol whatsoever because it will click in the brain and the old self-sabotaging neural pathways and the subconscious brain with all that stuff in it that we try to clean up will come to the prefrontal cortex. The only job of the prefrontal cortex is to come up with a decision real fast. And it's really good at doing that. The only thing is with an alcoholic is it doesn't have to be the right decision alcohol replaces every single time. So we just need to get away a new, new lifestyle, a new wife if need be, reunited with kids, getting that job you never thought you'd go for. Most of my guys go back and succeed in everything they do. In fact, when we picked a broken actor up from LA once and took him back, we, told, we convinced him that much that he was gonna be the biggest film star in the world. And while he was there, he received a script to one of the biggest box office movies of all time. So by the time he got the script, he was ready psychologically and he was up and he was like, yes, I can do this because that's all it is. Most of us make practical decisions based on fear. 
It's like, look at you, Sonia. You look amazing. You look amazing. You're, you're successful. Right. But you know if I mean? You could swap places for five minutes. All your problems would be over because we don't see what other people see. We all have our doubts. We all don't want to put weight on. We want to make sure we look great on camera. You take all that away because that's just your fear side. Oh. And you are absolutely a freaking amazing person. You've got everything that any other girl would die for. But we never know that. We don't know and, it until and somebody tells so us. So right here, and it's the fear of judgment and everything else that that we can do something. <clears throat> yeah, and it's not true. You see, listen, guys, listen to this carefully because I'm going to teach you a lesson now of uh, of life success. Quantum physics says that we can be, let's say, on a football field at a hundred places at the same time on that football field. It's quantum physics. It's a proven science. Where would I like to be? Well, I want to be over near the goal. I see, I see me in a hundred places, but I want to be over near the goal. So when I get the ball, I'm going to slot it in. I'm going to be the hero of the game. So how do we get there? Somebody asked me a question. Listen to this. We walk over and we take that position. What you can visualize in your head, you can hold in your hand, period. Absolutely. I, I love that expression, what you can visualize. And, and I think that goes for, for anything in life. Vision. Anything, anything at all. Anything. We, we was, I was at this very small office in Dallas uh, in a medical building. That's all we could afford. And every time I turned around, we saw this massive uh, glass-based office with like five or six offices inside. I mean, it cost a fortune and it looked beautiful. And I kept visualizing my name, Rob Kelly Recovery Group, on this wall behind it. I kept visualizing and I claimed it about, I don't know how many, a couple of hundred times. And one morning I was sat in the office and my assistant come in and he says, Hey, you wouldn't be interested in renting that thing next door. And I said, we can't afford that. He said, well, it's been empty that long. The management says, if you take it over in the next week or so, we'll not only give you six months free rent, but they'll also do a reduction on the rent, not much more than you're paying now. So four weeks later, well, not even four days after we were in the office and my name was on the back wall. Like it isn't, it's the office I'm talking about. That's the back wall as you walk in the glass doors. So yeah, you visualize it, you concentrate, you claim it, you can have it. Guys, from homelessness to where I am today is almost humanly impossible. They're yeah. one of the best minds in the modern addiction world. If I can do it, you can do it. Can I take you back there actually? Because we, we were, we digressed a little bit, although this is all important. How did you get from that place of the three bottles in 24 hours to where you are today? I mean, what helped you? Because obviously you've recovered, you're, you're, you're not drinking now, you're, you've made a huge success, you're helping others. What was that pivotal turning point? Well, from the three bottles of vodka with the kids, it got worse, unfortunately. Um, the wife did leave and uh, I just carried on drinking and within a, a short period of time of six or seven months the wife had gone the kids had gone the cars had gone the the, the, the practices had gone uh, I, I'd, I financially was bust my mom threw me out my brother and sister disowned me and I remember uh, becoming homeless I actually slept on on uh, bus shelters and I slept in parks and I slept in Piccadilly Gardens that's one of my favorite places to sleep because you know, it was central. So I was homeless for 14 months. I was begging on the streets. I was stealing alcohol. Uh, I woke up one morning, the guy asleep next to me and stabbed to death for his, for his training shoes. 
So I come close to, I was fighting every day for survival. You know, I, I grew up on a council estate. I could fight. But after a bit, Sonia, what happened was my weight dropped so much. You know, I, I was a young bodybuilder. So I was a big guy and I was oh, karate and boxing. So I was crazy. bodybuilding as well. Yeah, yeah I, won, I won a Mr. Britain and I won Mr. Manchester and I won Mr. Northwest and, you know, all that stuff. If you research, you'll see me. That was a monster. But I lost so much weight that people were now taking advantage and beating me up. So I, I tried to commit suicide six times. And on two occasions, I succeeded. Uh, my heart stopped and uh, my wrist was slit or I'd taken too much. Or, but they brought me back every time, the EMTs, and I was so pissed at them guys. Did you have any recollection of, of, of the other side or whatever no. you call it? No, I wish I had. <clears throat> but I just wanted to die. I mean, I didn't, I, my life was horrible. Yeah, but, like but, nobody but, would speak to me. coming back. Or, or, or it just wasn't happening at that. I know. There has to be like, no, a reason, right? <laughs> that had, I didn't know then, but yes, there is. We see what happened in the back, back centre of Manchester in the cobble streets where nobody goes. One morning, I dropped, it was pouring down the rain. I dropped down to my hands and knees and I started to cry from my stomach. You know, really painful, dull cry. I was done, Sonia. I, I couldn't kill myself. I'd hated my life. I remember looking up to the sky and I said, if there is a God up there, I can't do this on my own anymore. And I'm crying and my tears. I always remember looking down on the cobbles and my the rain was in the back of my head, mixing with the tears and dropping onto the cobbles, which were like purplish color. And I said that, and 30 seconds later, on, the, on some back street in Manchester, a guy, a young kid walked around the corner. He was an alcoholic in recovery. He'd missed his last bus home from a Bible study. So he'd walked two hours to get home. That's why he was so late. And he says, can I help you? And I says, I'm an alcoholic and I'm, I'm dying. And he lifted me up from this thing and he took me back to his house. He let me shave and shower for the first time. And he said, Rob, you can stare as long as you like until you get back on your feet. And that's where my journey started. Wow. And how did, and did you see that guy again? Was, um... I saw that guy again, but when I went to that meeting that night with him, uh, I hated the 12-step the meetings, but that guy spoke. His name was John, white hair, white beard, quite a pleasant guy, nothing crazy about him. And uh, I asked him to sponsor me and he said he wouldn't sponsor me, but he'd be my spiritual advisor for a period of 12 weeks. So every Wednesday night, I would grab my big book and I'd walk, I'd walk to his house, took an hour to walk there. And I would do some work together and we walked back, did that for 12 weeks on you. And I knew by the time I walked that man's house and doing step 12, I'd never drink again or do it if I continue to do this. But a week, because he told me life would take off immediately for me. Well, by the time I got home, somebody had called the house and offered me a part-time job. I'm like, okay. So the part-time job within a week and a half turned into a full-time job. So when I got my first check, my first pay slip, I went to the garage uh, or gas station, depending where you live in, and I bought him a little teddy bear and I bought him a card. And I did the same walk I'd done for 12 weeks back to his house. And when I got there, I knocked on the door, there was no answer. And I knocked on that loud, but the next door neighbor come out and he says, can I help you? I said, well, can you tell me where John's moved to? And she said, and I quote, there's been no one in that apartment for at least six months that I know of. So I let her close the door and I thought, she's weird. So I knocked on the left-hand side and the guy comes to the door. I said, can you tell me where John's relocated to, please? And he said, hey, man, I've been here for a year and that apartment's been vacant for a year. Never found that man. Went back to the meeting where I was at. And I said to the guy that was sharing the meeting, can you tell me where, who John is? And he went, John. I said, yeah, he, was, he was spoke. And then we went over to the coffee machine and we were talking. 
And a couple of guys laughed. And I thought they were, you know, taking the mickey. So I grabbed one of them by the neck and I thrust him up against the wall and said, don't you ever. And they dragged me off and said, Rob, Rob, you don't understand. We saw you over near the coffee machine talking to yourself. And that was it. Never saw that man since. Never traced him. Nobody knows anything about it. But that's the pivotal reason I'm here today. Who, who is that person? I believe it was an angel uh, or somebody looking after me that always knew that I'd make it and he was going to help me. Because at the right time I asked God or, you know, whatever looking after me, sent somebody to aid me. Because when I look back on my life now, Sonia, and the reason I'm so good at what I do is because I've made it, so to speak, I've more made it psychologically. People go, Dr. Rob, you don't understand. You've never been homeless. And I go, check. You never have your kiss taken off, check. And all these things that they come to me with because they see me doing well now, I go, I've done it all. So looking back in hindsight on the homelessness, on the loss of children, the loss of everything, it was like a semester at Harvard, the stuff that I'd learned to go forward with. Do you think everyone has to reach that rock bottom to turn their life around? I'm talking about alcoholics. <clears throat> yeah, I don't, well, every rock bottom is different. Yeah. I mean, we picked up a girl two years ago, three years ago in a hotel that probably cost about $1,000 a night, if not more, um, drinking champagne, $500 a bottle. That was her rock bottom. She was done and she was ready. So you have to be willing to change. You have to be desperate to stop drinking alcohol because remember our brain is telling us to drink it. In fact, going back to the brain, uh, hypothalamus, which is the, near the base of the brain, the prehistoric brain, uh, to normal people, it's a fight or flight part of the brain. It tells us to run or to stay and fight. It also tells us to drink water and eat food to survive. It's a survival part of the brain. So it tells the average person to drink and eat. That's why we never have to you know, teach a baby how to eat. It's always got his hands down It's because it's hungry. He knows, he knows he needs to eat or drink. What it tells the alcoholic is to drink alcohol. And that's why uh, the neural pathways in the brain has to be changed because my brain is telling me to drink alcohol whenever any situation comes up, you know, and that's the dangerous part. What happens if, or have you ever had a relapse in, in the time? <clears throat> yes, I did. Yeah. I've, I've had a couple and uh, it was all because I stopped doing what I, what he taught me to do, what he teach me to do. And I got complacent. And once one gets in complacent, all bets are off. It's my biggest, thing with alcoholics is every alcoholic will get complacent after a period of time you know i've seen people with 50 years go out and relapse and it's the same old story you know this we have to keep on top of this every 24 hours is a brand new day for me and i mean you i think you've, you've sort of already answered the question but in terms of spirituality um and where you are spirit, spiritually how how is among you obviously it's massively helped but how important is is being spiritual and everyone's got their own God, whether you call it God, universe, how important is that faith in? For me, for me and what I've seen around the world, I've worked with six and a half thousand people in the last 20 something years. So I know what I'm talking about here. 99.9% .9 is a spiritual journey period. Uh, when we have that spiritual journey, something happens in actual fact, uh, my findings over the years is once we have a spiritual awakening, and a psychic change, which is just a change of mind, our DNA changes. Why is that important? Because I'm not the same person before as I am now. 
psychologically that blows my mind Sonia means I never have to go back there because I've changed now psychologically that will completely take you to another level you know I truly believe uh, in, in I'm not I'm not a religious person but I am a spiritual version they, they often say over here that uh, religion is for those people who are scared of going to hell and spirituality are for those people who's already been there and don't want to go back, you know, <laughs> and that's kind of me. So it's very, very, very important. I, it, it, patience or sponsors, you know, if, if you're not going to believe in something, I'm not the person to take you through because I did not have that experience. And I'm not an atheist or agnostic. I don't know how I would have died if I was. What tools and techniques um, do, do you have any sort of practical tools and techniques that there are people listening um, that think they're alcoholics or, or their families of somebody they think is an alcoholic? Are any sort of tools or techniques that you can um, that you can give that, that may help people at the moment? I mean, especially look, here in England, I know we talked before, we're, we're in lockdown and look, people, yeah. I, I, I'm we know suicide rates are up. We know people are going to be eating more. They're going to be drinking more, especially drinking culture in England. And they may not be alcoholic, and then maybe just a period of time they're getting through, but they go probably go, oh, we know alcohol, alcohol rates are up. Definitely. <laughs> Sky high as well, 60, 61%, I think, throughout the world. So uh, I knew people that drank more than me. You can abuse alcohol and you can become very sick from that doesn't make you alcoholic, but you will abuse it if you're not careful. Anybody will, especially in these times. So the things you're looking for with, with teenagers is isolation. You're looking for, you know, missed appointments. You're looking at unkempt, you know, hanging around with the wrong people. All the good people, it makes no difference. Just just watch them for, for mums and dads and brothers. Just keep an eye on what you're drinking. I mean, it's common sense that if you drink two glasses of wine a night, that's brilliant, and go out for a binge weekend. I always used to do that. My friends do that. They're great. I have no problem with that. I've got nothing against alcohol. In fact, my wife drinks when we go to dinner and I will pour and smell her wine because I used to love German wine. So there's nothing wrong with that. But just, just be sensible, guys, because this is a time where we will look for different opportunities. You know, I, I asked a friend once, I said, you know, how many friends you've got? Oh, I've got almost 5,000 on Facebook. And I said, no, buddy, what you are is plugged into a wall. Be very careful of that because we think we do. Human beings need human beings, you know? And, and, and we did a test many years ago and we got 10 mice and put them in 10 different cages and we fed them. One bottle was cocaine and water. The other one was water. Nine out of the 10 mice went to the cocaine and water every time, which we thought they would. Cool. Why wouldn't you do that? So we got the same 10 mice and we put them in the same cage with a feed of cocaine and water and a feed of water. Nine out of the 10 went for the water every time. What does that tell us? It tells us that as a group, we can do this. You can't do this on your own because you're going to go for the easier, softer method every single time. And the methods that you go through every single day to get through it? I start with uh, mirror work in the morning. Um, and I this, this I'm What's teaching the back end of the brain. Yeah, I'm teaching the back of the brain a... Uh, <clears throat> So I stand in front of them every morning and say, I love you 10 times. I love you. I love you. Then I journal the day. I plan my day out what it's going to be. And I plan out six items that day. And if I've completed six items, it's a win for me that day. And if I complete five, it's a step back. I have to be careful. Complacency again. So I never put too much on the list. But I get up every morning and I also say, today is going to be a great day. Try it tomorrow, guys, when you get up. 
Say it with passion. Today's going to be a great day. And I'm telling you something now. If it's not, seek me out. I'll give you, you $10,000 or something. Because it always works. There's never a time when it doesn't, you know? You have to be passionate. You have to be adamant. This is your life we're talking about. You can take it back, believe me. Love it. Um, we're coming up to close to my last question, but I just want to find out where can people find out more about you? Um, I mean, you, do, you only have to Google your name and you're everywhere. Uh, and I want to talk, um, you've got a link, your book that goes to charitable organization. Just, just want to quickly mention that, Dr. Rob. Yeah, well, obviously, just like you said, it's been all over Facebook. If if you uh, if you have a pen, robkelly.com. I spell my name with two Bs, R-O-B-B-K-E-L-L-Y.com. There you'll find everything about us, what we do, what we have to offer. And you also find a link to the book, Daddy, Daddy, Please Stop Drinking. It was something that uh, my daughter said to me, as you know, and all proceeds, not all profits, all proceeds, every dime on that book will go out to communities around the world that reach out to us. So, uh, and all social medias were on Dr. Rob Kelly or Rob Kelly Recovery Group. Just do some searching. And I we'll think they're all on my website. We'll all the links as well. We'll yeah, brilliant. In the brilliant. Show so my final question, Dr. Rob, and look, this has been really interesting. I've really enjoyed it. <laughs> if you were to write a message in a bottle for future generations to find, what would that message be? Pure and simple, don't be afraid of fear. Live your life to the full and you will achieve anything that you can visualize. I'd cork that bad boy up and I'd send that off because if I could tell my 13-year-old self that, life would have been amazing. Not everything you worry about comes true. You know, we spent 90% of our time worrying about something that never happens, you know? Stop worrying, start living. What's the worst can happen? That's what you keep asking yourself. The worst can happen. Nine out of 10 times was successful. Dr. Rob, thank you so much for being a guest on my show. I wish I was there in person next yeah. time. <laughs> <coughs> yes. Um, but Definitely. yeah, thank you once again. And um, yeah, have an amazing day. Thank you for being on the show. Hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, there's a new interview out every Monday. So hit subscribe and like and you'll get it straight into your inbox.